Welcome to Trust Company Talks with Bill Noble and Burke Coons. Good afternoon, everybody. You guys hear me all right? Excellent. Excellent. Welcome to Trust Company Talks. Yes, welcome indeed. Yes, thank you, Burke. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Bill Noble, and again with my colleague, Mr. Burke Kuntz, Wealth Stratus Extraordinaire with Trust Company of the South. And um, we are very excited to have with us today Mr. Charles Shook of Trestle Capital here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Ms. Amy Rousseau with Wyatt Robbins Yates, a uh, very uh, prestigious law firm here in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, as, as holistic wealth managers here at Trust Company, um, one of the things that we've experienced more and more over the years is a lot of our clients that are coming to us now are people that have gone through a major, what we call a liquidity event, which means basically they have sold their company. Um, sometimes they're privately owned companies, sometimes they're publicly owned companies. Sometimes they're smaller companies, sometimes they're larger companies, but but they all have, uh, when you go through that process, there are a lot of uh, uh, processes and steps and stages along the way that um, um, if handled correctly, can be very advantageous to, to people or can work against you and maybe get you a lower price for, your, for the sale of your company or maybe not quite the outcome that you thought you were originally going to get. So, um, so today we're just, we're here, we're, we're really pleased to have Amy and Charles here to, to um, as seasoned professionals, we've worked with both their firms before and, and have a high regard and respect for both of them. Um, um, and just really just want to get their input on what, what they think about what's going on today in today's, you know, from a macro picture in the M&A world, but also really what you, if you're, if you're out there and you're thinking about buying, even thinking about buying a business. Um, selling one. Are, I'm sorry, selling a, selling yeah, a business. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but if you're, if you're even in that realm of thinking about it, uh, there's so many things that can be done way before you even get to the, get to the, uh, the altar. So, um, so with that, I don't know, Bert, did you want to start out with a question or? or? I was thinking we, we would just maybe yeah. ask Amy and Charles to, to give a, a brief background of themselves. Amy, Amy, why don't you go Yeah, first? that'd be great. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I am a corporate lawyer over 20 years. I specialize in mergers and acquisitions um, in my first uh, half of my career. I was working in a, in a larger market for a large international law firm mostly representing private equity firms, doing large LBO transactions. Um, Although I did enjoy working for those clients' portfolio companies doing smaller add-on acquisitions or sometimes divestitures. So uh, I moved to uh, the Raleigh area years ago. I joined Weirich in 2010 um, and have uh, been leading the M&A practice group here for about eight years now. What's really been special for me is coming down here. I've had an opportunity to do more work on the sell side, which is now over half of my practice. I work with a lot of business owners, uh, founders, families, um, you know, earlier investors. And so I've had a lot of um, opportunity to bring what I learned on the buy side, working for the big private equity buyers 
and bringing that to the other side of the table. So using that on behalf of my owners. So um, really enjoyed that work. And, and as I say, I probably do over half of my work on the sell side now. Great, great. Sir Charles, please tell us about yourself. Sure. Uh, Charles Shook, uh, 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 founder of Trestle Capital Partners. Uh, believe it or not, we got started in the spring of 2003. So we're knocking on 20 years um, uh, as, as a firm. Uh, started life out of college in the strategy consulting world. Uh, after graduate school, went to a large regional investment banking firm, did M&A work and, and public offering work there. Um, and then, uh, went to work for a wealthy family, uh, Forbes 400 family in, in Alabama and, and ran a private equity fund for them, small private equity fund. Um, but, uh, moved back to Raleigh and, and started Trestle with, uh, my, my partner. And, and ever since we started Trestle, we've been focusing, um, almost exclusively on sell side transactions um, predominantly in the lower end of the middle market, uh, lots of deals uh, sort of in the 10 to $100 million uh, sort of aggregate value range. Um, but a, a couple of hallmarks of, of our practice and our client base, um, uh, almost all of our clients, there's some exceptions, are, are privately held businesses. Sometimes it's a single owner. Sometimes it's a family uh, sometimes it's a group of individuals that that started the business or bought the business when it was smaller. They they tend to stick these companies in the oven for varying periods of time. But I, again, our client base is a lot of companies that have been building value for 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Um, and then the time comes to reassess uh, where the owner, the owners are in terms of their life cycle. Um, again, the overwhelming majority of our client base does not have institutional capital in it yet, but they're institutional quality deals, which means that um, they are uh, attractive to uh, various combinations of strategic acquirers and financial buyers um, that are that are sophisticated. Um, and, and we're that um, sort of uh, quarterback, if you will, that helps manage uh, the, the, the full or the partial liquidity event for these folks. Um, and, and I have to add, um, we've probably done more transactions with any single law firm with Wire Robbins than, than anyone else. We, uh, uh, we did our first one a, a long time ago and have always enjoyed working with Wire. So they're, they're a great, uh, M&A firm and, and have always enjoyed working with them. Thank you. So, so obviously, there's a lot of love in the room right now, Burke. What, what do you think? <laughs> well, talk, okay. Well, Charles, let's let's talk about this because uh, let me let me let me go to you first on this. So, um, it's it's been interesting to me. Every, I, I've been with Trust Company twenty. I'm on, coming up on my twenty fifth year now, and and it is so weird how some of the clients that the people that are that are clients of ours now. When we've gotten um, introduced to them, they've been in various stages of some of them are right at the altar. Some of them are, are thinking about. So there's just so many different stages uh, of of the process of of the sales process. And it's a very and it can be a very emotional process, too, um, from to, from that, that person's perspective. But 
Um, I'd love to get your insights on if somebody's even thinking about selling their company, how should they start from a macro standpoint and then work down? How do they build their team? How do they, who should they be talking to? Who, who, who should they be listening to, to, to do it in a thoughtful, strategic, prudent manner? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's funny you you uh, you 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 mentioned uh, the emotional part of it. I kind of joke yeah. with people all the time. I, I have an MBA, but I actually have an honorary psychology degree because <laughs> um, if you go back to uh, um, the the typical client for Trestle Capital, which you know a- Amy's mentioned that that uh, she's worked a lot with private equity firms. I'm a recovering private equity guy myself you know, they tend to be a little more dispassionate and analytical about entering and ex- exiting businesses. But if, if you're that typical uh, privately held family um, or even close knit group of, of, of owners that have been growing a business for 10, 15, 20 years, um, again, at the risk of overgeneralizing, uh, you're a great operator. You're a great entrepreneur, and and you sort of focus on what you should be focusing on, and and that is um, growing and driving, uh, you know, uh, incremental value for your business. And and again, most of those folks, there's some exceptions, are not sort of serial M and A folks, um, and and as a result. Um, they they don't have uh, um, uh, sort of the experience and and the and the reps, uh, if you will, um, in the merger and acquisition batters box um, to to have um, sort of the perspective that um, you know that Amy and I get from sort of doing it every day, doing it every week. And, and so my first word of advice is, you know, before you start reacting to the the emails and the letters and the phone calls and and with the advent of of all these technologies uh, if if you're a company that gets on anyone's radar you're getting bombarded nearly weekly with inquiries about we'd love to talk to you about buying your business you you, you sort of need to get prepared and and getting prepared and 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 sort of our playbook means um, having a, a close knit group of advisors that you trust, it starts with a great attorney. You can do an M and A deal without an investment banker. You, you, you can, or you certainly shouldn't do one without a great, uh, uh, attorney and law firm. Your, your CPA is very important. Um, you know, we obviously love getting involved early because we can bring perspectives on the, the marketability and the saleability of, of the company today. Uh, versus um, uh, some recommendations that we might make uh, to help improve uh, the marketability and the saleability of the company. Um, I always tell our our clients uh, well ahead of time, um, you'd be well served, however informally or formally you may want to do it, to engage with a couple of additional trusted advisors, hopefully people that have already gone through a sale of their business. Um, doesn't have to be in your industry. It can be another, but someone that you trust, um, selling a business tends to be more complicated, um, and a little more turbulent. Um, it's an invasive process at times, um, and, and get that group of advisors, the three or four or five people, um, uh, and start a dialogue with them and, and learn about, um, the process of selling your business. 
uh, do an assessment, sort of a situational analysis of, of any deficiencies that you have. And, and, and there's a long list of what those deficiencies could be. Um, and then also start the, the sort of emotional psychological journey, because that's not nearly as easy as a lot of people think. You know, having a great economic outcome is sort of the foundation, but that's not the beginning and ending. And uh, thinking about um, those issues, you know, when's the right time to sell? Am I going to stick with the company post-closing? What's my role? If I'm no longer with the company, what am I going to do? Um, what are my family members in the business going to do if that's relevant to the transaction? So there's a whole host of issues along that. But start early, get prepared. And then when the time comes to even consider going to the market, you're, you're better organized. It's a more disciplined approach to selling the business. Um, and it's not as um, uh, much of a shotgun process as some people end up backing into when they, when they sell their business. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Amy, from your perspective, what, what, what I'd love to hear your thoughts on from the legal side. Yeah, side no, of things. totally agree with all of it, Charles said. And I love when I have an opportunity to talk to business owners in advance, actually, even if it's well in advance of an exit. One of the things that I start with is build your teams, external teams and internal teams. And I think it's the people you have around you that are going to be really critical to the success of your transaction. So I agree um, having really good, sophisticated counsel for an M&A transaction is important. Um, it's never too early to engage someone to be, you know, helping you prepare for that. Um, having Considering having an investment banker who can help you maximize the value for your business is, I think, again, never too early to start those conversations. I have bankers who work with clients for years in advance of an exit and helping them to get their business to the point where it's really going to be attractive to the market. Um, owners who are going to come into substantial sums of money, never too early to be talking to your wealth management people to, you know, think about some tax strategies and things you can do in advance of an, of an exit, some of which need to be done a year or more ahead of time. And so, <clears throat> you know, to the extent you have those and, and Charles mentioned your accounting firm, they're going to be really critical to getting your financials into shape and, it's all about presenting your business in, in, in sort of the best light that you can. And, and so those professionals are going to help you to do that and then be ready to execute the transaction and then take care of, you know, the implementation of uh, what you have coming after the exit. And so building that external team, I think, is something really to focus on early. And then I always say your internal team is just as important. So, um you know, going through a sale transaction is not for the faint of heart, Charles mentioned. We sometimes serve as counselors, and I agree with that. I, I use my psychology minor a little bit. Um, as, and I always tell my sellers, if you've not done this before, put your seatbelt on and be ready for a wild ride because it's a lot of work and it's um, running your business, you know, the same as you always have, if not better, while it's under such scrutiny and doing a second job, which is engaging with potential buyer, one or more potential buyers and, um, you know, handling all of the process and the diligence and the negotiation. And so the internal team is really important for that. So think about, you know, your management team, who's going to be um, really critical to the success of this transaction. Do you have things in place that are going to incentivize those people to be there for you and to help you through the transaction and, and, 
you know, does that include maybe putting in some financial incentives for a closing of a transaction if you don't have something already put in place like that? So again, it's for me, the people, uh, the external team, the internal team, and, and sort of never too soon to be thinking about getting that all um, put together pretty well. That's all good. Yeah. Bert? Yeah, sorry. I, I mean, I just, just listened to that thinking about um, thinking about the, you know, the environment that we're in and, you know, coming out of uh, coming out of COVID. Uh, it, I, I, as I was taking notes, couldn't help but think about, um, you know, the, the fact, you know, well, I guess I'm just curious, you know, talk about the environment out there today. I mean, I mean, everybody, I guess, having had to sit on the sidelines for some time, uh, you know, um, Talk about what the what the environment is like is out there um, for private transactions at this point for for sellers and and you know how um, you know how this environment uh, you know may have changed since you know two or three years ago. Maybe maybe Amy go first and we'll about sure. Charles. Yeah. Charles confirm whether he's seen the same thing. But twenty twenty one was a record breaking year for okay. private. Yeah. I mean, like out of the park. We mm-hmm. were so busy. Um, and it, not just in the U.S., but internationally, the week was a record-setting year, um, number of transactions, um, just the deal volume. And there are so many buyers out there, and it's continuing into 2022. There's so much um, interest and so much demand that our private company targets are really very well situated right now to be acquired. So. We've had a really strong seller's market. We've been able to negotiate really strong seller terms. I think 2021 was especially fun for those of us representing sellers and that we were able to achieve exit terms unlike anything we'd ever mm-hmm. seen you know, historically. Um, and we had buyers really lining up willing to agree to things. Um, one example of that is representations and warranties insurance. That's a product that has become really popular over the past probably seven or eight years. But really in the past year, we were able as sellers to just insist on that being part of literally at the LOI stage, an agreement that that would be used. You know, for people who don't know what that does is it pushes a lot of the post-closing exposure that would otherwise fall onto the sellers. It pushes it to an insurance provider. And so it allows the sellers to really get out with most of the money in their pocket at closing and not have a lot of risk afterwards. Hmm. Um, well, Amy, let me ask you this. Yeah. So, cause I've seen, yeah, we, we, we had several good, great new clients come in this past year and some of the multiples on the companies that they had sold were, were, as you just said, you know, were, you know, unbelievable. And so what has created such a demand in the marketplace right now? And in in so many different industries too. I mean, all kinds of genres and different sort of industries industries that I've seen, they've all uh they all seem to be getting top dollar right now. What 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 is the cause of that in your opinion? And Charles, I'd love for you to chime in on that also. Yeah, sure. Um uh so, you know, having been doing this uh, uh, since sort of 1994, it's been interesting to see how each cycle is a little bit different. Um, you, you know, what was notable about COVID is um, it, it didn't have a credit crunch like the massive credit crunch that we had associated with the Great Recession. 
you know, the Great Recession really cooled M and A uh, activity for for a while. Um, but COVID was really a, a crisis of confidence, in my opinion, um, and it didn't last that long. I mean, we slowed down for months, not quarters. Uh, but by the the summer uh, of 2020, the phones were ringing. Buyers were saying, "Hey, we're we're back in business. Send us um, uh, opportunities that you have that fit our criteria, et cetera, et cetera." Um, I, I think um, you know there there has been a a long term multi decade trend in the private equity world where there are more private equity funds. Um, there's more capital. Um, there's more capital in the lower middle market. Um, you know, there was a point in time where uh, if, if you didn't have a couple million dollars of EBITDA, you couldn't get an institutional private equity deal done. And, and that number is half that now. There, there are smaller institutional funds. Um, uh, the cost of capital, um, you know, notwithstanding a little bit of bump in interest rates, uh, you know, uh, to borrow money. So, so credit is available. Credit is cheap. Uh, leverage as a multiple of EBITDA is as strong as it's been in a long time. Public companies have cash on balance sheet. They have attractively priced currencies where they can use stock if they choose to in M&A transactions. And, and again, it's, it's sort of a, a, a virtuous cycle to the upside while it's all working and it's continuing to work um, uh, coming out of COVID. So, so COVID was just sort of a temporary crisis of confidence. Um, and it's given private business owners great options. I mean, it seems like in our recent transactions across a variety of industries, we're putting both strategic uh, acquirer letters of intent as well as financial buyer letters of intent in front of um, uh, our clients. And, and they've got some really good choices uh, in terms of the type of transactions they can look at. It's not just valuation. It's do you want all cash now? Or do you want to roll some equity with a great private equity firm and have a second bite at Apple down the road? Um, Amy is absolutely correct about deal terms. Deal terms are as arguably as seller friendly as, they, as they've been in a long time. Um, and that that does nothing but benefit sell side clients as, as well. Do me one favor, Charles. I mean, we have a we're blessed. Most of our clients are fairly sophisticated and have been the one, especially the ones who have been through the sale of a company, but you mentioned EBITDA several times. Could you define what EBITDA is? Because well, a lot sure. of people love uh, to talk about that at cocktail yeah, parties. Yeah, you know, EBITDA, multiples of EBITDA are, are sort of yardsticks that people throw around a lot. Um, you know, technically it's it's earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization. Um, I, I kind of joke with people, um, you know, we're, we're, we're always fighting the, the trade show industry conference scuttlebutt because clients will go to these uh, conferences in their industries and they'll come back and say, hey, I had dinner with a friend and he sold his business for 12 times EBITDA. So that means my business is 12 times worth 12. And it may be, but it may not be. Uh, right. there, there's a lot of variables that go into it. The, the other thing is that people don't walk into a company and say, oh, this is this is a 12 times EBITDA business. It's it's loosely similar to to uh, residential housing. Um, people talk about price per square foot. Well, that's just a calculated figure after a buyer says, I'm willing to pay X for this house. Mm-hmm. You divide X by the number of square foot and now it squirts the, uh, the price per square foot. So 
Um, multiples of EBITDA are a common metric uh, in the M&A world and across a lot of sectors. Um, but most acquirers, certainly institutional acquirers, have more and multiple, more sophisticated and multiple methodologies to value business businesses. And, and then the, the EBITDA multiples are, are just a calculated figure afterwards. Thank you for that. Maybe just... To Charles's um, view of the market, I, I just also would add that I feel that COVID actually created some opportunity for, that was driving them. Yeah. You know, we certainly had clients who were very focused on their technology and wanting to build that out, rely so much more on technology than maybe they had before. So a lot of them chose to do that through strategic acquisitions. So I think the tech sector was very, very busy last year. Um, supply chain, similarly, you know, clients really focused on that and maybe the need to shore some of that up in, through acquisition rather than have to rely on outside suppliers. So so I think there was actually, after a pause, as, as Charles mentioned, we, we actually saw COVID driving some of the M&A activity. Interesting, interesting. Um, one thing um, I think our, our uh, listeners, to the extent we have any, uh, you know, are, are interested in is, is uh, you know, what kind of pitfalls um, exist going, I mean, just because you're both so experienced, what, what are some common, um, what would be some common mistakes that you'd like to see people avoid, uh, you know, as they go through a process is certainly, uh, you know, perhaps as competitive as, we, as we've seen sometime. Amy, Amy, you want to go first or charter or whoever, whoever's got a, some in their head? Um, well, <laughs> jumping at the first opportunity and, um, you know, thinking you need to sort of capture the bird in hand, while sometimes that's the right move, I, I do think that um, I've seen a lot of situations where there was some lost opportunity. Um, again, I go back to hiring some sophisticated advisors. I, I, I've seen a lot of success in taking a pause, getting a financial advisor in to just tell you, you know, what do you think of this deal? Is it worth me reaching out to others in the market to see if I could do something differently or better? And, and, and as Charles said earlier, it's not always down to the, you know, economics of the deal, but are you finding the right place for this business that you've built? Um, so maybe moving too quickly without having the right advisors. Um, Understanding your own uh, internal potential issues, I think, is really critical and maybe trying to get in front of those. Um, the One of the worst things that can happen is when a buyer gets in and starts looking at your business and, and, and they really will look at, you know, every aspect of your business and every piece of paper. And so, um, Again, if I have a chance to talk to companies early, I say, get your paperwork in order, be ready to give them every contract and have it be signed and have it be complete and have it be, you know, the pages turned up the right way up. You know, all of that matters to the perception that the buyer will have about how well you've run your business. Um, but if there's other things that, and they often are, you know, unpaid sales tax or, you know, some other things that you know, you would rather find yourself in and already have a chance to get in front of versus a buyer coming to you and saying, you know, our advisors tell, tell us you guys haven't been doing what you need to do and with respect to this tax issue or this regulatory issue. So trying to just get your arms around what you're selling and, again, finding maybe the skeletons in your closet and trying to get in front of with your advisor's help, you know, how is the best way for us to present this to a potential buyer? I think that's really 
um, I guess not doing that mm-hmm. would be the pitfalls I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I would sort of build on Amy's comments. I mean, there, there, there's a, 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 a long list of stuff in the, in the diligence category that a lot of companies just don't pay attention to and they start an M&A process and they're applying a, a healthy dose of duct tape and, and, and <laughs> bubble gum uh, rather than doing what Amy is advising, which is uh, get all of your contracts in order, get your cap table in order. Uh, is there uh, an employee or two or three that you offered some options to four years ago when they left, you didn't clean them up? Um, and could they come back and say, Hey, uh, you, you, you owe me hundreds of thousands of dollars because of these options I still have. Um, the, the things that we focus on in, a, in, in addition to, to, to some of those diligence items is we really sort of look at the business holistically. Um, we try to, uh, sort of identify, you know, any chinks in the armor. It can be customer concentration, Right. If you're a business owner and you've had a customer that's north of 15 or 20 percent of your revenue for a long time and you've grown with them, those are great relationships and, and they're they're profitable. But there, there are, are sort of tipping points where buyers get really nervous about that. That can have an adverse impact on your um, on your multiple and your valuation. That's also something that doesn't change overnight. Uh, and that's why if we're able to sit down. Um, uh, you know, well in advance, you know, years, not, not months, people can launch new products, uh, try to grow, grow around that. Um, we look at, um, you know, revenue models. Um, you know, there's been such a move across a lot of industries to subscription-based revenue models. I mean, uh, we we're familiar with a company that had a chain of car washes, that went to a subscription model and got a double digit multiple when they exited to an institutional buyer. Um, it's so funny. I, I swear I've heard more yeah. about car washes in the last six yeah, months. Than it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, and, and, is, is it just real estate or I mean, what in the world is going well, on? It's, again, it's just, I think it's just another sign of the times Burke that, um, you know, capital is opportunistic and, and lots of capital will be even more opportunistic. Um, but, but we, um, uh, we we try to really you know apply a little bit of the old uh, sort of you know strategy consulting hat and say you, you know um, in in addition to 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 the economics of your business let's talk about your management bench strength right and again in in the in the lower middle market occasionally you have businesses that if the the primary owner or principal gets hit by the proverbial fire truck. That business is is adversely impacted in a in a very material way. We we try to assess uh, what kind of uh, strategic str- you know longer term strategic planning processes are in place. What type of annual operating plan uh, processes are in place and budgeting and you know sometimes we'll get a quick blowback that says oh budgets are worthless and and again it's not about um, uh, landing in, in the high 90th percentile on an annual budgeting cycle. It is more about being able to articulate to a buyer that this is a senior management team that has a cadence, that they're thoughtful about their business, um, that they're aware of their, their markets and their competitors and their offering, and they're, they're going about it in a thoughtful way rather than we just show up at the, at the office every day and, and sort of do what we do. So, 
again, it, 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 you know, sometimes we, we have clients that, that um, are doing sort of a lot of things right and they'll grade out of A, but more times than not, there's some things to improve. It, it, you know, the categories change um, and in combination with, with, with great lawyers and great you know, CPA firms, if you can get that external team built uh, and, and have a little bit of time to, to chip away at, at, the, at the list, you will benefit from it when the time comes to to explore marketing the company and, and and selling it. If I could just probably say my biggest don't, because maybe that, you know, even mm-hmm. if you haven't done any of this prep work and some offer just comes in, I guess the one thing I would say is don't ever sign an LOI without having a lawyer look at it, mm-hmm. even if it's just a quick review because you, the whole thing's close to being done. But um there's a lot, even at the LOI stage, that may impact the ultimate value that you get, including the structure of the transaction and what the ultimate tax impact of that is. So I always say, just run it past the lawyer before you sign it. And 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 again, at, at the risk of making a self-serving comment, I'll, I'll build on that, Amy. Um you know, it, it's it's not uncommon for big firms, whether it's a big public company or a sizable private equity firm, to to get an owner or a group of owners on the phone and fire off a letter of intent. And and we had a client once um, that got that letter of intent um, in 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 the in the tens of millions of dollars, and the you know, the ownership group, you know, privately held company, but it was a group of disparate owners. They were like, oh my goodness, this, this is amazing. And we did some quick analysis and we suggested to that client, there's a better offer out there. And this particular LOI was from a public company. And the owners got a little nervous that marketing uh, Mm -hmm. the company would um, scare this public company off. And it's. I understand the sentiment. The psychology of selling can be difficult because all of a sudden you have a, a bird that's worth <laughs> a lot of money that's almost in in hand. You convince this ownership group to market the the business, <laughs> and even though this same public company ultimately prevailed, there were several bidders that got very close, and and the value that they that this ownership group went up fifty percent in the process, and. Yeah. It was a combination of us doing what we do and, and, and a great law firm that worked on that transaction, um, extracting great deal terms for them. So, again, this sort of gets back to um, people not being as proactive as they otherwise could have been. Uh, a really nice letter of intent showing up and you start hyperventilating a little bit. But ultimately, counsel and the banker uh, on that deal, which was us, we, we sort of held their hand and walked them through a much better outcome, even though it took a couple months to get there, right? Yeah, I I recently saw an article that if you get, you know, some people are not looking to sell their companies. They've got a great business going and they're they're loving what they're doing. They're making money. They know it's worth something and but they're not at that point in their heads where they're they're ready to sell. And then somebody shows up and 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 you know one guy shows up and and a lot of times somebody's already in that industry and they they they, you know, come to them with an offer and then, then they go, wow, you know, these guys are offering me a lot of money. And I, I saw an article that said that if you if, if that situation happens, if you get a a good attorney and or uh, M&A banker involved with it, usually you, your premium is going to go up at least 25 percent because 
if one guy tries to go in there and, and you know, under cover of darkness and and do a deal with somebody, then there's other people that are out there, but they that that person just doesn't know about that they exist. And people like yourselves that help run run those type of processes, uh, y'all can be of great help from that perspective. There's no well, question I mean, about that. Trust I mean, Company of the South deals predominantly in in, in public securities, right? Right. And, and you know, Warren Buffett said a long time ago, in the short term, the market's a, a voting machine, and in the long term, it's a it's a weighing machine. I used that line this morning with the client. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the the same thing holds true with private companies with one exception. You, you can't go get a quote for your business yeah. uh, off of Bloomberg or, or whatever in the morning. Um, but the, the hard work, the really important work is done by the, the management team and the owners of a business. And, you know, again, whether it's 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years, They've built the intrinsic value of their company. Um, it's then where you get to the intersection of age, <clears throat> goals and objectives in life, uh, current M&A market conditions, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that, that, that attorneys and, and bankers, when they're involved, help extract sort of the options to get a, a full liquidity event or a partial liquidity event, but but the but the actual value, the intrinsic value of the business has been built already. Um, yeah, and and just because there's not an active liquid market for private companies is is where we have to come in and canvas the market and put put options uh, of what sort of willing uh, buyers are willing to do at any given point in time. Well put. Well put. I want to come back to. Eight. Well, I'll, I'll mute. There we go. I want to come back to Amy one more time. Um, so she's she's got the uh, the psychology minor. So so, uh, <laughs> so, so so I guess just before we close, I mean, so how do people know? I mean, when someone's considering or when they're not considering it, I mean, as as an um, as an advocate, uh, I mean, when 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 is when is it the right time? I mean, I guess it's different for everybody, but I'd just be curious, um, you know, from your perspective, uh, you know, when people decide that, that this is what they want to do? That's a great question. And I'm not sure I have the answer to it. I think it's really facts and circumstances with each business. I know that a lot of the companies I work with, they start to feel the time is right because they're thinking about succession. Maybe that's not coming together the way they you know, had hoped. We have a lot of sort of aging founders or uh, CEOs of companies who are starting to think that an exit transaction to a buyer is probably makes more sense. Um, so sometimes it's those types of factors. Sometimes it's the LOI that comes in over the transom and it's such a great offer gets you thinking. And I um, am working with a co- company right now that they're really still in their building stage of this software product that they're really excited about. Um, and they thought they were going to you know, need three to five more years to really build the company and make it successful. And they've already got an offer in hand. And now they're thinking, you know, maybe it's not too soon. Again, we've, we're in such a seller friendly market. They're wondering, are we going to miss an opportunity here? Is there a window that's closing? So, you know, uh, I think it, it, the time's always right. Maybe to think about is, is this good timing for me? Is this a good market? maybe talk to some advisors about, I don't want to keep pushing advisors on people, but I think, you know, it's worth a conversation with a banker to, to see what's out there for people in a company like mine, where I'm situated, you know, what industry I'm in. 
um, and to sort of just always be open to the possibility. But, um, you know, if you're, if you're a founder or a family that's built a business, a lot of it is psychological. And so I've had, you know, sellers think they're ready, get very close, like all the way to almost signing a purchase agreement. I mean, they've spent thousands of dollars on, uh, you know, advisor fees and other things, but at the last minute, they just say, I can't, they'll find a reason. They won't say it's because they don't want to, you know, they'll say it's, I've realized that this isn't, you know, the right value or they don't like the non-compete, you know, they'll find a reason that's not related to not wanting to sell their baby. But I think ultimately it's that they don't want to sell their baby. And so, you know, I think it's probably some internal um, thoughtfulness as well. Right. What, what, what does this look like? Again, who's the buyer here? Is this a place where I want my business to, you know, pass mm-hmm. on? To? And then am I ready for that in my personal life? Amy and, and, and Charles, both y'all could answer this. One last question I'd like to ask is, Amy, you mentioned earlier that um, that 2021 was best year you've had, you know, been the best year ever. I mean, where do you, where do you guys see, or do you see anything you talked a little, you touched on a little bit earlier, but right now for today's environment and looking forward the next, and I don't know how far you can feel like you can go out with any, 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 uh, feel like you've, you've got a real, real hold on it. But as far as multiples and what premiums are going for, for companies right now, where do you see now in the next three to five years for them in a business or for, so, and, and, and not for any industry group. If you if you can put a general generalization on that, I'll go first, and I'll let Charles because he'll probably have more um, educated in response to that. But everything I've been looking at, listening to, and, and the reporting that I've seen is that we definitely expect twenty twenty two to to remain the same. Um, beyond that, hard to predict. But there's still a lot of money to be spent. Corporations have a lot of money on their books. Private equity have a lot of capital to you know, use on acquisitions, the CEO confidence levels are really high, which is always a pretty good indicator of M&A activity. Um, I mean, there are some challenges, maybe in the political environment, maybe with some of the regulatory scrutiny, but for the most part, we don't see a change. So I think this year is still a really busy market. How about you, Sir Charles? Yeah, you know, I'm going to date myself. You know, I got out of graduate school and was doing public offerings and M&A work and the Asian currency crisis hit in the in 97 or whatnot. And then the Internet took off and, and then it was the NASDAQ and the Internet bubble peaking in 2000. And, and that created a, a downtick in a pretty meaningful way. And then growth picked up and M&A picked up uh, and private equity started taking off again. And then we had the Great Recession and then that that was pretty dramatic. And then it's, but it, and, and so this whole concept of you, you, you don't always see it coming with precision. The, the troughs have varying depths to them and levels of severity, but they kind of seem to always recover. What is a little different is um, the, there, there, ten, there tends to be some sector uh, um, uh, rotation Um you know, if if you've got a great SaaS software company now, wow, your 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 multiples you're getting are, are great. Doesn't mean that you can't sell a metal bender. You absolutely can, but it's got to be, um, you know, really attractive in terms of size and growth and 
and profitability and return on capital. And 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 you see this with the inbound stuff that that we get. And I'm sure Amy gets the same thing. You know, we're just inundated with emails of, hey, um, this is our firm. This is what we're looking for. Um, and, and so even though there's more attractive sectors that are hotter at any given point in time, um, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's still robust. And again, the credit markets are still intact. Um, and I would never suggest it's going to go on forever because there's always a downtick. Um, uh, but I think 22 is going to be strong. I don't see anything immediate, you know, unless we have a major geopolitical thing that really um, uh, hammers us. Uh, but but so far, it's it's going to be another strong year um, uh, in the M&A world and, and for middle market, lower middle market, private business owners. That's very, very helpful. Very helpful. We need to do this again. I, I want to be respectful of the yeah. time, but I mean, this is this has been extraordinarily illuminating. I think for well, for me, and then for uh, I think a lot of folks will find this helpful. Um, I really appreciate you guys uh, coming on. Thank yeah, you. Well, I love to talk about what I do. So anytime. <laughs> I feel like yeah, I just feel like we scratched the surface. There's so many, so many levels and nuances to this whole process, and we've all live through these at various levels and the way we consult with our clients. So, so thank y'all both very much for being our guest today. And, um, and we will definitely be back in touch with you again and hopefully have you back to if, uh, if, if we do have something major happen and then, and just see, see, get your, get your thoughts and your feels on that. So, well, uh, both Burke and, and Billy, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, uh, happy to come back. Uh, just sure. like Amy, I love talking about it. And, 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 you know, from the heart, uh, we've referred several clients to Trust Company of the South, and they've all been ecstatic with uh, the work you've done for them. Uh, you, you sort of have a unique approach to, uh, to what you do, and, and it's great to have a trusted financial advisor that you feel extremely comfortable uh, uh, referring your clients to. So, well, well, thank you very much. We appreciate there you it. Go. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Amy, great seeing you. Please tell our other friends at Wire that we said hello. And uh, we truly appreciate y'all's time today. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks guys. Y'all have a great one. Yeah, cheers. Thank you for listening to Trust Company Talks. These opinions are intended as entertainment. Any opinions expressed on this podcast by Bill Noble, Burke Coons, or anyone else are not necessarily those of Trust Company of the South. There is no guarantee that these statements, opinions, or forecasts provided here will prove to be accurate. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. These materials are not intended to be tax or legal advice. Your readers are encouraged to consult their own legal tax and investment advisor before implementing any financial strategy.